2: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast, the podcast that echoes British politics by taking an awful lot of time talking about absolutely nothing happening. This is episode 143. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week, as leader of the Brexit party and the physical manifestation of that feeling when you touch something slimy but you don't know what it is yet, Nigel Farage has accused the Prime Minister of willfully deceiving the people over Brexit. What I want to know is, does that mean he's been unwillfully doing it all along and his take back control, his subtle For help to escape from whoever's forcing him to do this. Or is saying someone else willfully deceives too, just his way of doing a compliment, and his Valentine's Day cards often just involve saying, Well, you're an awful bastard, and hoping they too find it an attractive quality. Yes, sadly for everyone, Nigel Farage is all over the news again like a particularly awful rash. Why? Well, it's mainly because the Brexit Party are constantly topping the European election polls as people who are at home to answer calls in the day think that the best way to make a stand to leave the EU is to elect a ton of people to the EU who then won't do their job but at the same time won't be able to make a blind bit of difference to the Brexit negotiations. It feels a lot like protesting about horrific mass farming procedures by making sure someone who's also against them gets hired to work at a pop-up KFC stand for a weekend. Education Secretary and pinched ball of overused plasticine Damien Hines said the European elections are the ultimate protest vote. Yeah, the ultimate way to protest by electing people who don't want to do a certain job to do a certain job. It'd only be an ultimate protest vote if this was all an immense trolling by the British public and the aim was to elect the Brexit party to as many MEP seats as possible and then vote to remain in a second referendum so they actually had to work as part of an institution they hated. Otherwise, you'd be better off just writing obscene things on your ballot paper and hoping officials don't just take that as a vote for whichever candidate in your area is the biggest penis. Which is probably the Brexit Party. Despite being in the lead, the Brexit Party still have no manifesto and Farage said they will never have one, which supporters say makes them better than others who have policies and don't keep them. Yes, that makes sense. I mean, those who can't follow through on their aims or deceive the public are much worse than those who think the public are so stupid they don't even need to be deceived in the first place. On the BBC's Andrew Marshall, one of old gobshite's many television appearances over the week, purely put in place so that later the same pundits that interviewed him can ask how he became so popular with the people, Farage appeared to get annoyed at being asked questions about things he'd previously said. And yeah, that is sloppy of the BBC to do such a thing. I mean, why would they assume that he'd remember any of that when he didn't have any conviction back then either? These subjects range from his saying that he admired Putin, which is the sort of thing you have to say if you still want to get funding, to saying that climate change policies are pointless, though I'm sure he would think that as reptiles survive in a warmer climate. Nigel instead asked why Andrew Marr didn't ask him about other party members, which he should have done, as there aren't any, just supporters who've paid £25 for the privilege. It's like the world's worst fan club. Pay your fee and within three weeks you'll receive a general feeling of chaos and dread, plus a badge and five recipes on how to make a meal out of everything. But while many suggested Farage had put on a terrible show, he actually displayed very Trump-like behaviour, blaming the press for a conspiracy against him, saying he was victimised and shouting lots of things that have absolutely no substance. So it's likely it just made him more popular with his supporters, and the only real way to knock him off his snake oil wagon is either to ignore him, which won't happen, interrogate him properly on any interviews, which also probably won't happen, or, I don't know, sprinkle salt around so that he dissolves when he gets there. According to the newspaper, even the Necromicon would say is just too awful, The Sun, this past weekend, Farage ran off after his chauffeur crashed his 4x4 into a car that had a 13-month-old baby in it. The baby was okay, but I mean, that's typical Nigel, isn't it? Ruining children's futures and not sticking around long enough to be accountable for it. The Brexit Party are now calling for 650 candidates for a general election, because there is no better way of tackling the elite than by being elected to the elite while already being the elite. I'm just waiting for them to take on billionaires by asking for billions of fun to do so. While the Brexit party stormed the polls, the other new kid on the block, just the one that no one picks for their team and doesn't make any room on the lunch table for, Change UK, aka the one who changes names and logos like it's Lady Gaga at the Met Ball, only no one takes any notice. They still haven't really got anywhere. Now, it could be, uh, as a friend of ours pointed out over the weekend, uh, that when she received her European election voting card, she had to ask her partner who Change UK were, even though she was certain that she kept up with the news. It could also be because plans for Change UK, the Lib Dems and the Green to back a single Remain-based candidate in the Peterborough by-election in June fell through when the unnamed candidate pulled out hours before the deadline. It doesn't hold much hope for the Remain parties when their representative candidate prefers to leave. Gavin Shooker, who's a four-year-old's drawing of what a man looks like but made 3D, said the reason was that the Labour Party had said they would strenuously disrupt the campaign and obstruct an independent Remain candidate. Well, yes, that's what happens in an election, Gavin. It explains their incredibly low polling figures and no one knowing who they are if Change UK assume that all you have to do for an election is turn up and apparently no one else will bother. Oh, and if you were wondering, Minister for the Cabinet Office and distressed cotton bud, David Lidlington has said that the UK has to fight the European elections. So yes, they are definitely on, as you probably knew ages before David did, making me wonder if they got him to just announce it as a prank so he'd look really stupid. But also, how does a country fight an election? I mean, it's for parties to fight, not the whole of the UK to take up arms or tiny voting pencils and charge into battle. Has Lidlington got it confused with Eurovision? Is there a chance the Conservatives won't stand anyone for an MEP, but in between... Between Sweden and Croatia's entries on May the 18th, Prime Minister and flesh-covered box-loading machine Theresa May will leap up and do stilted dancing and coughing to a pop beat. Speaking of May, it seems cross-party Brexit talks have, predictably, completely failed, with some of Labour now demanding any deal has to include a second referendum. And some of their MPs saying that it doesn't, and some of their MPs saying that it does again. I mean, it's amazing that Labour's European elections campaign started with party leader and all the wrong choices on a children's flipbook put together, Jeremy Corbyn, announcing that Labour can unite our country, when his own MPs are still about as together as a scattered box of hundreds and thousands. But maybe some of those Labour MPs are right, until they contradict themselves on telly any day now. I mean, during a meeting with the Lib Dems, David Lidlington said that a second referendum had become perfectly practical. And while many have seen that as a hope that it'll happen, judging by everything else the Conservatives have done in nine years, I think that sounds like it's the exact opposite of anything they do. Withered Elton John Tribute Act and Belgian politician Guy Verhofstadt said during a visit to the UK that he didn't know if Brexit will happen, which proves anyone who says the EU doesn't represent British people is completely wrong, as that's the level of certainty we have about it too. When asked during Prime Minister's questions when she'd be standing down by Conservative MP, a woman who always looks like she'd pretend to be a nice neighbour but then call noise pollution officers on you because she heard you coughing once, Andrea Jenkins, May responded by saying Brexit is not an issue about her. You know, despite her red lines, inability to talk to another human being without being weird and a lack of any plans other than to say the same phrases over and over again and present the exact same deal or being the reason absolutely no one has got anywhere. If it's not an issue about her, then she's definitely written a lot of articles in that issue and paid for most of the adverts. May said if it was up to her, then they'd have left already, in the same way that if it was up to me, I'd be eating a cake right now, only I haven't bothered to get one or made any efforts to make sure that that can happen, so I'm definitely not. Though that is probably the best for the podcast, to be honest. It would just be a lot of saliva, sort of, more than usual. In the same PNQs, May compared herself to Liverpool FC beating Barcelona 4-3 in the second leg by saying she could make a Liverpool-style comeback on Brexit. Except that Liverpool played to stay in Europe with help from a German coach and kept control of the ball at all times. So pretty much the exact opposite of the Prime Minister who's endlessly scoring own goals. And I've said that all, despite no clue whatsoever about football. You're welcome. I'm very pleased with myself. We should find out May's leaving date very soon, with predictions saying it'll be between the EU elections and a Tory official's vote of no confidence against her in June, just in time for loads of newspaper hacks to get excited about an end of May, end of May headline, and the rest of us to be too worried about what on earth will come next. I mean, recent leadership bids have come from every apprentice candidate in one person and disgraced MP Pretty Patel, who'd make a terrible Prime Minister. I mean, every time she went on a walking holiday in Wales, she'd be meeting Israeli officials at the cafe on Snowden Visitor Centre. Presenter of Daytime TV and The Upside Down, Esther McVeigh, has also said she'll be going forward, which is a first for her. Home Secretary and Morph's evil twin, Sajid Javid has already received £50,000 in funding and tried to elicit sympathy with the public by saying that he gets abused because of his colour all of the time. But that is just working in the Home Office, isn't it? I mean, I bet that's a warm-up exercise that he has for his staff and when they're done with him, he sends them back to their desks all fired up to deport people. And Health Secretary and that drama teacher who tries to invite himself on students' nights out, Matt Hancock, turned up to an event in Soho dressed like he was about to host a workshop about society that mainly involved him singing songs he'd composed himself in his studio that he'd had built in his garage. I find it weird that I'm now really hoping May doesn't leave all that quickly. In other news, staff working for the Labour Party could take strike action after their pay offer included a real terms pay cut. It sort of feels like the party should be supporting them in protesting against this and I wonder if the picket lines will just be full of Labour bosses shouting at themselves for a better deal. The NHS is seeing the first sustained fall in GP numbers in 50 years, meaning that patients now really have to be. The UK economy has risen in the first quarter of the year by more than predicted, though that's entirely because the manufacturing sector increased output in order to prepare for Brexit on the 29th of March. It does make me wonder if this constantly delayed Brexit is just a sneaky way to get British workers super productive for once. It's been revealed that a number of MPs have been claiming expenses for their dependent children who are now in their 20s and aren't at all dependent or children. Energy vampire, sorry, I mean minister, Claire Perry, claimed in 2017 an additional £9,846 on top of her usual £22,000 of expenses for her allowance for her three children who are 17, 19 and 22. Five others have also been named as doing the same, but all of it fits in the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority rules. Saying that, if Claire Perry is your mum, you probably do need some sort of external help. And lastly, it's not just British politics that are collapsing but also the home what they do happen in, the Palace of Westminster and plans have now been drawn up for what an interim parliament would look like while the old one has its various leaks repaired. And no, I don't mean they're just going to remove Gavin Williamson. The aim is to demolish the old Department of Health and have a new Commons chamber in there. My preference, though, would be to just make them use a different community centre around the country every morning and have to provide their own squash and biscuits. Or better still, just stay in Parliament as it collapses and then get put up in tiny, unsuitable B&Bs while being constantly promised they'll be rehoused soon but still have absolutely nothing after two years. Yeah, Popol Broads. God, that was a long old intro considering the complete lack of news, wasn't it? Well, I wanted to put something else in apart from Nigel Farage as I feel he's had enough bloody publicity already this week. I'm starting to feel like maybe the way to deal with his constant presence on all the new shows is not to complain because they're going to keep doing it because it gets ratings and people don't like him so they watch it to complain and people like him so they watch it to enjoy his melted, melted face. But instead of complaining about his constant being on all the TV shows, I think maybe we should insist that he appears on all the TV shows uh, instead, like all of them, possible. Like have him get spiders on his face on I'm a Celeb, that would definitely keep his mouth shut for a minute. Pop him on Saturday Kitchen and make him have beer constantly with every meal, but more than just one sip like downing it, you know, while we're shouting at him but you love drinking, don't you Nigel? Like a real person, you love the drinking, keep drinking Nigel before holding him upside down and dunking him head first into a keg for slightly too long. He could appear on various dramas and they could play sinister music while he arrives and then have him killed off in a series of grim ways, following which all the other characters celebrate, like, slightly too much. Or how about Mastermind, where John Humphreys just keeps asking him questions on what his policies are, and he has to say pass on absolutely everything. And that's not true. John Humphreys would just act really friendly with him, and it would be all fine, wouldn't it? Fucking John Humphreys. Um, it's the old, you know, if that's what you want, then you can have all of it treatment, like they used to do with cigarettes. Uh, well, you know, if you want to smoke, you'll have to smoke this entire pack in ten minutes. I mean, I say they, I may have dreamed that, but it sounds like one of those ideas a parent might have had before realising that their kid would just boast about how many cigarettes they smoked in one go to all of their friends while bunking off school to have another smoke. Yeah, so maybe not a great idea, but hey, you know, it's worth a try. I will confide in you this week, Pod Pals. Um, I was contacted last week um, to go on Good Morning Britain uh, on Friday to talk about the whole Danny Baker getting sacked thing, and I turned it down. Uh, I'm just telling you that to sound like some sort of amazing moral pariah, um, but I did then reread and they said there was a fee, uh, and now I feel a bit stupid for turning it down. But mainly, I did it because the idea of having to be near Piers Morgan is not how I want to spend any morning. I can't really imagine how happy is wife must be that he isn't around now five mornings a week and she doesn't have to do that. Um, it's just, it just seems pointless, doesn't it? He's just going to get all red-faced and get all upset and at some point um, you know I'll probably say that I had a veggie sausage for breakfast or something and then he'll lose his mind and his pants will explode Um, but secondly uh, it was also because I did a silly tweet about Danny Baker um, saying that it was stupid of him to do a racist tweet about the royal family because if he'd done it about anything else he'd have kept his job and got interviewed on the telly all about his political party Um, but that doesn't mean that I uh, a white bloke should go on and talk about whether or not another white bloke's tweet was racist or not that's not really my place to decide that is it Um, yeah so well, I didn't do it and now I have some sort of uh, moral high ground uh, apart from the sadness that I could have got paid and didn't realise. So, moral ground level? Probably quite low ground, uh So, moral ground level rather than high level? Maybe low ground level? No morals at all, just contempt for peers, floppy knee flesh for a face, Morgan? Uh, Yeah, probably. Was it a mistake? Who knows? Uh, Still, nice to be asked, isn't it? It's always nice to be asked. Um, Anyway, you're here, and that's what's important, and thanks for that. Um, A big thank you this week to Sophie Yates-Lew from Campaign Boot Camp, which is where they train people to run effective political campaigns um, and worth checking out. I sort of, in my head, they all do like sort of army-style marches uh, where all their army things are, what? do we want an equal society for all when do we want it we want it now and then they do press ups and stuff I'm sure that's not how it works anyway uh, Sophie very kindly sent details of recent graduates from very interesting campaigns um, uh, for interviewee guest possibilities uh, one of which I speak to on this very episode so it's very much appreciated and you should check out campaign Bootcamp camp um, as it's absolutely brilliant um, so that's all the thanks this week uh, no one donated to the ko or Patreon sites no one reviewed the show I spent most days just having to check with my wife that I still existed and I hadn't just faded away into the ether Ha! Joke, I'm not that needy I'm quite needy, I did, I googled a lot I checked if anyone had reviewed on Podbean No, no one had. Anyway, look, none of you have to do any of those things, but if you don't then this bit just becomes very boring or very needy, it's just essentially me pretending to be victimised because you haven't given me any dosh or love for the thing that I do by choice and have chosen to do, and I really don't have to do but I do it because otherwise I'd scream at people in the park. Maybe I should set up a Brexit party style supporter system, you know you could all give me a few quid and in return I won't even do the podcast. I'll just insinuate that I might do one at some point and then blame everyone else for doing podcasts wrongly instead. Does that work? Oh, God, they're going to do so well, aren't they, the Brexit Party? Because so many people can't smell bullshit when it's in a suit. Sorry, what I mean is please do a donating, review the show on whichever pod app you use, or just tell people that this exists and then maybe they should give it a whirl, or better yet, once they've stopped whirling, a listen if they aren't too dizzy. Um, I did a podcast, isn't this one, again this week. Um, I hope you'll listen to It Dies Here, hosted by Akin Omobetan last week. Um, and if you haven't you still can? Hooray for the internet! Um, and then last night, um, I guested on the totally unprepared politics podcast, which is very much uh, what it says with hosts Jake and Ada chatting politics things without any preparation whatsoever. Um, and I had a lot of fun. There was discussion about uh, the EU elections and Trump and China, and then a the whole thing about sheep. Um, being enlisted into a school. It was all very silly. Uh, Do check it out. It's a very, very fun show. Um, Also, I know I plug this every week at the moment, but I'm going to keep doing that until every ticket is sold. Uh, The kids' show about politics that I do, called How Does This Politics Thing Work Then, with me and Tatten from simplepolitics.co.uk, is on at the Folkestone Quarterhouse on the 25th of May. Um, I believe that's 11.30am. That's early, isn't it? Who wants to do that? Um, No, I mean, come. Uh, It's just after the EU election, so I don't know what we'll be saying about that there. And then it's on at the Underbelly Festival on Southbank on May the 30th and the 31st um, it's suitable for children 7 plus and sort of explains politics to them I mean it does explain politics just not current politics no one can really explain that hell of a shit show um, just sort of explains how politics should be uh, so you know there's hope for the future anyway please go to the courthouse or Underbelly Festival websites to grab those tickets ASAP and I will stick all them links in the goddamn pod blurb On this week's show, I'm speaking to Pauline Ankunda about the Memorial 2007 campaign to remember those who died and were enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade that so much of Britain was funded by, um, and also uh, to educate people all about it, Um, which is easily way more informative than any attempts to try and chat with Piers Morgan about Danny Baker's tweets, probably. Uh, Plus, this week, a little look at the EU elections, for they are only just over a week away, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be wondering how to vote, why to vote, or maybe just how are we here, and why, oh, why is this all happening? happening, how do I make it stop? I won't be answering the last two, I'm really sorry. If you're British, chances are you've asked a number of times, uh, with a high level of reason, on a number of different events, uh, are we the baddies? Now look, the answer isn't always yes, but when we're not, it probably doesn't neutralise all the times when we are or have been. I mean, sure, faulty Towers was very funny and loved all the way around the world, but then there was the British Empire and the enslaving and forced colonisation of millions. Hey, we do make excellent pies, but oh, we also caused a massive famine in India and Ireland and are currently aiding one in Yemen. And oh, God, I mean, sometimes it's amazing that other countries haven't bombed us claiming it's for humanitarian aid. The transatlantic slave trade is one of those very big historical events in question that led to the slavery of between 25 to 30 million people, the deaths of many, and an oppression that lasted for four centuries. As stated by the French historian Jean-Michel Devaux, it was one of the greatest tragedies in the history of humanity in terms of scale and duration. Whereas according to British history, it's, oh yeah, that, well, I'm sure we stopped that. When did we stop that? Oh, uh, probably quite quickly after it started. Yeah, anyway, crop rotation's pretty great, huh? Look at the crop rotation. Britain was very heavily involved in the slave trade, with our ships being the largest on the most major trade route until Parliament banned it in 1807, at which point the Brits moved to Asia and exploited cheap labour instead, because we're always looking for the very worst of bargains. But millions of pounds were inherited for the country because of the slave trade and arguably the Industrial Revolution would never have happened without its funding. Neither with the building of many cities, ports, canals and large houses owned by the very, very rich. Several banks started on slave trade money and the Church of England did pretty well out of it too because, you know, that's what Jesus would have wanted, right? And yet, as you'll hear in this interview, in schools it's still mostly reduced to just a bit of homework and there's a museum in Liverpool which someone on Google reviews criticised for not having much going on when they visited, though I think in terms of the slave trade they really should have seen that as a plus and a sign of progression. The Memorial 2007 campaign has, for 17 years now, been making the case for a permanent memorial to remember those who died were enslaved and resisted the slave trade, as well as commemorate their descendants and create an educational resource so that people can learn about one of the greatest tragedies in the history of humanity. The project has planning permission for the statue to be placed in Hyde Park, but they still don't have the funding. So this week I spoke to Pauline Ankunda from Memorial 2007 on why awareness about the transatlantic slave trade is lacking in Britain, what it would mean to children of African and West Indian descent to have their ancestors' history included in education, and what she thinks of the crop rotation system, as I mean, it's pretty great, right? It's like a different crop every year and then there's a fallow year. No, look, I didn't ask about the last one. That would be stupid. Please have a listen. And then after the interview uh, and in the podcast info on your app, I've listed how you can help the campaign too. Here's Pauline. I I know nothing about the transatlantic slave trade and I feel hugely uh, embarrassed about it. I I was taught nothing about it at school. I went to a very multicultural school in North London and it wasn't any part of our history, uh, you know, learning or education at any point. Um, And sort of reading about it in in later life, it's it's been referred to as the African Holocaust on the amount of millions of lives lost and and the the amount of people that were enslaved. Why is there not more awareness of it as a major part of Britain's history and uh, why is there not more remembrance of those who died and were oppressed um what is the reason for that is it all guilt and inherent racism and ignorance what's why why is that happening
1: the main thing is it's racism and it's the fact that it's systemic and it's kind of legitimized and embedded in the way our society runs and like um you know it really benefits white people at the hierarchy of this system And then for those of us, people of colour and black people, we are othered. And this comes out through the way in which we learn our own history or we learn about the transatlantic slave trade. When I learnt about it, I was in year nine. We did two weeks and my teacher um, told us to all go down underneath the table. The whole classroom was underneath the table and he shook it. And that was, you know, the experience of the slaves. And our homework was to write a diary entry as though you were a slave who had um, been taken onto the ships and into slavery. And only, I think, three years ago, I remembered and I was just thinking, oh, my God, this is horrific. Um, like, what? <laughs> and like this is this is so bad. And um, I then realized that it's kind of Britain doesn't want to ever look bad in its history. It's an uncomfortable truth to kind of learn about the entirety of the legacy of slavery and what that, benefited for britain and how that has really helped
2: yeah i mean i guess we we never want to be the bad guys do we it's in it you know britain always pretends it's the good guys in in every situation and any bit of history that might prove that otherwise even though there's loads of bits of history that prove it otherwise <laughs> but that gets stays hidden
1: honestly and in a way it's kind of when it's kind of the transatlantic slave trade was when the ideology of racial inferiority began and it was then reinforced by the eugenics movement And having to deal with that kind of, I don't know, I find it's kind of too lazy to say that it's kind of just guilt or ignorance because it's legitimized. It's erased. They don't we aren't really represented in history. Um, And the people at the center of the transatlantic slave trade, you know, the 20 to 30 million lives lost, their stories aren't told. When we do hear about the transatlantic slave trade, we hear about Britain's abolishment of the slavery act, but then we don't hear about the compensation to the slave owners. Um, you know, we hear about the white abolitionists, but we don't know about Olaudah Equiano. But, you know, we don't hear about um, how we, how black people at the centre of the story also work to free themselves, to kind of, how do I ex- express, to kind of tell their own stories.
2: Yeah, I suppose it's that similar thing of, uh, like in the recent uh, Oscar scandal of a green book doing very well, but it was all about the white person being the saviour of the black person rather than it being... Rather than sort of showing the kind of black people's achievements themselves.
1: It's become so normalized for, for I guess, white supremacy has and has become so normalized in the sense that history has become whitewashed and is retold. And it's then wrong. It's misinformed. You know, that's why when David Lammy made comments about the white saviour trope and why it's damaging and it isn't helpful for Africans and comic relief need to change the way that they're trying to support and how it turned into an argument that they framed it as though that he was attacking Stacey Dooley and her intentions, instead of really talking about the root of it, which is the consequences of what racism does. And that's erasing history and then misinforming. And it is an injustice to British people uh, and society as well, because we need to tell um, history in its entirety in order to learn from it, instead of completely kind of repeating things that i can't believe the green book you know it was there it's in the oscars and it's surprising but it's it's stopped being shocking it's kind of just things are being repeated and the people at the center of the stories aren't given the platforms to tell those stories and if we are given the platforms to tell that story it becomes a you know an ethnic movie a story on oppression and struggle or a, or a new or controversial outlook when in reality it's just a way to look at things that isn't white centered or isn't made for kind of um, white ignorance to be shielded and made comfortable or you know white guilt not to be made not to be felt by those who benefit and privilege from it and instead to be made to feel as though that they're the ones who are also doing the kind of work of making the
2: world a better place. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I, I want to. I want to ask you more about the the sort of uh, the importance of the history of the transatlantic slave trade. But is there's also um, there must be a great importance about informing children about this period just you know how how does it affect children if their school education doesn't include their ancestors stories like how does that affect kids if they are learning about the pasts of others but they're never kind of included in it what does that does that affect the way that you grow up and the way you learn about things that must have an impact
1: completely completely um beautiful quote by professor gustron um kind of illustrates this when he said If children are not encouraged to develop a sense of history, they cannot develop an appreciation of how they can empower themselves to make a difference, to contribute to society to the fullness of their potential and to claim their own place in history. As people of colour in Britain, we don't grow up feeling British. We don't grow up feeling that we have a right or a space to take up space in Britain. And we don't learn about um, and not learning about ourselves. The way it's taught is not accessible, and it's not fair. And it. You know, it really shows why so many children of colour kind of... It's part of the reasons, you know, it makes up part of the reason why children of colour don't necessarily do that well in school or feel welcomed at school because the curriculum does not include their narrative, like their stories and their narratives and their existence in our society. We don't... It's kind of legitimising the erasure and omission of our histories in the narrative it makes us feel displaced. I mean, for me, I came to the UK when I was eight and people were surprised I spoke English, even though English is a national language in Uganda.
2: Yeah, everyone speaks it better than English people do. We One day we've got to realise this. <laughs> Honestly, and, you know, people
1: still think that Africa is a country and oh, God. still think that, you know, we're in huts and there is a reason for that and it's because we're not being told history and we're not being taught about the world in a holistic way That is including the realities of how we it's still the same way of kind of presenting, you know, British history or Western history as this modern advancement of culture, religion, science. And whereas we're still spoken about in this pitying way of, um, you know, in this way that our societies are still primitive or, you know, we're still the idea of primitive even is inherently racist. But I mean, going back in terms of like black British and people of British people of color, it means that we don't feel comfortable in it. It took me, it's taken me up and it took me up until I was 21 to kind of see that my identity was British. You know, it wasn't just I could now, I can now, you know, answer the question of where are you from with pride and say I'm from Britain, you know, and like not feel like as if I'm not really or. It's not a thing, but that shouldn't be the case. It should be something that everyone learns from from a young age, from primary school, because it's not that black history is just black history or it's a separate history. No, it's all of our history. It's British history. It's just as important. It's not a sideline or an option. It's a reflection of the society that we are in living in today.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting that you said that you didn't feel British until you were 21. Um, and it's interesting you say you feel British now. I mean, because we're in a current culture where there's been the Windrush scandal and, and others very like it. Um, and it sort of feels to me like willful ignorance or kind of gaslighting of the contribution to British history and culture from uh, BAME citizens has become a lot worse. Has Have things got worse? Does it make you feel sort of less British because of it? I mean, you know, it, it just feels like the, the government in particular, being hostile to anyone that they deem not to be British in their eyes, you know, things feel quite uh, volatile at the moment. Is that is that is that right to say that?
1: Well, um, I just don't, I think it's basically <laughs> um, if you let things go on for so long, um, where you kind of erase histories so or you don't talk about people of color, um achievements in in the society's narrative and in our history, windrush happens. We're not taught about Windrush and why in 1941 you know it came uh, pe- you know people from the Caribbean which was a British colony they had a right that, you know it was they were citizens they came into this country and then years later they're now being deported back because of a lack of education it's you know then the and this is where like you know parliament has a part to play in this because a lot of the people that do sit at the top still do benefit directly from going all the way back the labor of the enslaved Africans and it's like it's how it what made it's what made the country what it was and realizing that has made me reframe the way in which I I see what British identity means because yes I can see that parliament is inherently racist it wasn't made these space like it wasn't made for us or in the sense that it they don't kind of center us emotions or uh, histories and the ways in which they decide or make decisions is the reason why Windrush happened and so many other things like you know the mentality is racist and it's legitimized and misinformed and then we have Windrush happening and it got into the public consciousness because it was genuinely British citizens are being sent back you know into being sent back again I don't even like saying or framing it in this way of like being sent back no they're just being deported from their home because you know members of parliament don't see their existence or their humanity as British and it's kind of in this way it's the reason why the big thing is like because racism is so legitimized it's and kind of you know when you talk about you know this inherent racism we're talking about a system that is allowed to happen and thrive when when history is kind of whitewashed and not told properly. It means that these things happen, and I don't think that things have become worse for um, people of colour in Britain. It's just that we can't stand it. We know we are realising these things. We have made contributions in this country, um, you know, dating back to the Roman times, you know, to the third as early as the third century. But the way in which our history is told, and the way it's framed, it's as though you know, in 19 in the night in 1940s, that's when black people came into this country. But that's not true. And things being told on you know, things things being built on the foundation of lies, on you know, a false pretext of this Great Britain and amazing, you know, um place. And I don't know, it erases it erases contributions of people of color citizens and it erases us erases our existence in this country. And we can't stand it anymore. And I think that's why it may look like it's become worse. It's because we have become louder about it, unapologetic about it. We're not scared anymore. And you see it happening where I think I've already said this, but um it's I just think it's so important to note that Britain hasn't come into terms about the full um, legacy of, you know, of slavery, the full legacy of colonialism. Mm -hmm. We're not taught about it. So we haven't come to terms with it. We haven't been able to heal from it. We haven't been able to learn from it. And that's why when we do have, um, like, BME citizens in parliament, we're not seeing the change that we expect. You know, we may have this representation, but we're not not having um, enough change. And when I say we do have this representation, it's not nearly enough. Um, You know, because it's not just in Parliament. From Parliament, we need the education system to change. We need to have inclusive and diversity programs that actually have black and brown people heading them. Or, you know, we need to start putting the people at the centre of the stories of racism Or, or, you know, oppression. We need to be the ones that take control of the narrative and that narrative needs to be taken as a British narrative and not as the minute we say something against the truth and the horrors of colonialism and slavery, we're biting the hand that has fed us. And that's not true. And that's why I don't know if I'm worried that I might say anything you know, too, too extra.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
2: And we'll be back with Pauline in a minute, but first... EU elections! Sorry, don't talk to me like that, no need to get yeah. EU elections! What, what about elections? I don't get... EU elections! Yeah, me, elections... I don't understand... Stop, EU shall... elections, you fucking idiot. Oh. Surprise! It's the EU elections next week, despite absolutely no-one expecting them. Sorry? Uh, sorry, what was that? You've guessed that this would happen since... Well, since when? Around autumn... 2016. Oh, OK. Um, you mean you didn't think the government would have worked out a Brexit deal by now and every time they haven't managed it, you've not been overcome with shock and exasperation, no? No, of course not. We all knew the EU elections were going to happen. This is exactly the sort of shit Nostradamus would have done on his day off while drunk. What we don't yet know, though, is if MEPs will get to take their seats in the European Parliament on the 2nd of June. (laughs) You're right, they almost certainly will. Okay, what we don't yet know is if they'll only serve for a few weeks, as May will find a new plan before the summer (laughs) recess. Okay, yeah, you're right again. Okay, what we don't actually know is just how much voters will use the EU elections as a protest vote, or as a serious vote for who they want to represent them in the EU, or just as a nice day out to their local school, scout hut, community centre or porter cabin. I mean, sometimes it is just fun putting a cross in a box like you're making the most minimalist of treasure maps but as much of all of this feels inevitable it's still very handy to know exactly how it will work or more likely won't The EU elections are proportional, which doesn't just mean they give realistic body expectations, but more that the party with the most votes takes the first seat, and then the second seat is decided by taking the original vote count, then dividing it by the number of seats they have, then adding plus one, because you know, they thought they'd make this easy for everyone. So if you're the big time winning party with seat number one, you get your totals divided by two, while everyone else gets theirs divided by one, and so on and so on until there's only one seat left which has to be fought for by using their large cutlery implement of choice while wearing a Victorian hat. No, OK, it just keeps dividing and allocating until they are all gone. This is apparently called the Hunt method because it's too complicated and most elections Hunt use it. Ahem. No, it's actually named after the Belgian dude what named it, but in the US it's called the Jefferson method because they bloody well have to remake everything, don't they? Jesus. Anyway, that's what's used all over Britain, except in Northern Ireland, where everyone just votes for who they want to in order of preference with the first, second and third, you know, in a way that actually makes sense. There are 73 MEP seats up for grabs in the UK and each area has between 3 to 10 MEPs depending on how big they are. The areas that is, not the MEPs. I mean, if one MEP is over six foot or very wide, they don't just say, well that's one less seat for you because you'll need two. It's not like on aeroplanes, come on. Where I am, in the big smoke, there's eight seats up for grabs, but in North East England there's only three because crags and hills don't get a vote, which I think is discriminatory, especially as they also have to suffer the country's ups and downs like everyone. No, I'm sorry, that's just too shit a gag. The last EU elections were in 2014 and had had the amazing turnout of thirty-five point four percent, which is amazing. And I say amazing. I mean that genuinely because it was up a whole naught point nine percent on the ones before. Yeah, I mean it's incredible how just two years after that, people were convinced the EU was undemocratic after likely not really taking any part in its democracy. You know, it's, so, it's so funny how it happens, and it? it's so funny. In that one, uh, the 2014 one, UKIP, then led by everyone's least favourite suited hagfish, Nigel Farage, won with 26.6% of the vote and gained 24 seats, which their MEPs then went on to rarely take unless it was to start fighting each other or to specifically vote against a ban or the sale of elephant ivory. Or against extra funding for various British areas or group because, you know, they represent the British people. Because they're so against the EU, they won't even take its money unless it's for their own personal salaries and pension funds, which is totally different. Ovs. Ovs. Labour were just behind your 20 seats and 24.4% of the vote, then the Conservatives had 19 seats, and sadly, the Animal Welfare Party got none because no one cares about the teeny animals no more. Why, why all those papos and those kittos? Why no one cares? It's so sad. But this time, well, the last YouGov poll from April 30th suggests the Brexit party, led by the same dickhead with a different logo, is set to get 34% of the vote, which will be, uh, some seats. to not even talk about it. Then Labour are on 21%, uh, the Conservatives are in fifth place behind the Lib Dems and the Greens, and all the way down the bottom is Change UK on 3%, even though they've just revealed their bus that looks a lot like it accidentally has covered itself in a printing error. So, who to vote for? Uh, Well, that's up to you, isn't it? You're your own person. I'm not your dad. I mean, it depends on where you are in the country. I mean, in the South West, you have the exciting choice of... Lord Andrew Adonis, who looks like a Kelpian from Star Trek Discovery. Yes, nerds, that one's for you. And is generally a hugely irritating twat who seems to change his mind every two minutes on where he stands, and in that sense, is totally along Labour's political lines. Or there's crumbling Veruca with a face, and Widdicombe for the Brexit party, just in case you've given up on humanity entirely. Or for UKIP, there's character from the 1970s. Joy of Sex books, who just stands peering in through the window wanking, Carl Benjamin, who's currently under police investigation for threatening not to rape Jess Phillips, which is, no look, I'm not even, look, he's just basically he's an awful, awful fucking twat, okay? Or if none of those tickle your already completely numb and unticklable parts, there's amalgamation of Rod Jane and Freddie Rachel Johnson, who is, well, a Johnson in all sense of the word, and is running for Change UK. Or Molly Scott Cato for the Greens, who's already an MEP. And look, I don't want to influence your vote, but, and don't quote me on this, she doesn't seem completely unhinged. But, you know, you do you. Checking on who can I vote I've vote i got loads of fun ones in the London constituency where I am. Uh, the Animal Welfare Party has seven, yes, seven candidates because they are not fucking about. Those doggos need welfare in the Europe's goddamn now. Uh, then there are 11 independent candidates including Roger Hallam, who's a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, and Claudia McDowell, who's a climate and ecological emergency candidate. Or Alan Dennis Kirkby who hasn't even bothered to load a picture up and when I Google him, pictures of other MEP candidates come up instead. Maybe, just maybe, Alan Dennis Kirkby can emulate all of the MEPs and by voting for him he'll be the uber MEP with the skills of many. Uh, Or he's lazy and doesn't deserve a vote because he's hoping just having three names is enough. It's not Alan you lose this time, you lose. If you want to vote to stop the Brexit party, which would be the sensible thing to do, not because uh, they're pro-Brexit, but because they're a bunch of charlatans. Well, look, it's proportional representation, so you vote for who you want that isn't the Brexit party, or you can look and see who has the highest likelihood of getting the most or next most amount of seats in your area and vote for them. But the Brexit party will probably still get seats because we are in the darkest timeline. If you want to have a laugh, vote for Change UK so they can at least maybe reach double digits. I mean, votes, that is not (laughs) seats. Definitely not seats. And will any of it make a difference to Brexit? Well, if the Brexit party do storm it, it's likely Theresa May will say that gives her an even bigger mandate to push for Brexit and will encourage sick-faced Nigel to run his party in the general elections if they ever happen. And if Remain parties do very well? Well, then Theresa May will probably say she has an even bigger mandate to push for Brexit because that's the only thing she's programmed to say and look, it really doesn't matter. Most importantly, these people have to represent us in the EU for some amount of time. And it can either be one of many MEPs who's qualified and has done it for years or is really keen to do the job as something interesting, or it could be Farage Ann Widdicombe and IRA pal Claire Fox sitting in the corner at Strasbourg as everyone else in the European Parliament wonders why the UK has foregone having MEPs and instead just dressed up some rotting offal and had it delivered. But definitely vote. That's the most sensible thing to do. And then in years to come, as the Brexit Party rule Britain on a manifesto of absolutely nothing, and the UK is now but a feudal system where goods are exchanged for racist jokes or sideways glances, then you'll say that you were there when everyone said, who is Alan Dennis Kirkby? And now, back to Pauline. I mean, uh, I think it's also fascinating to sort of... um, You know, as as you mentioned earlier, that that educating children about their history empowers them and and we don't have enough uh, sort of BAME-like members of parliament. And as you say, surely if the education system changed, that could encourage children to want to take on more powerful roles, more powerful jobs if they felt like the focus was on them from a younger age.
1: Yeah. I was, and I also, um, in terms of like becoming worse, it's not really, I think, for example, there was a Black and Asian Studies um, organization that was founded in 1991 and they were campaigning for educational reform. They had meetings in parliament. Um, You know, they had, you know, it was a group of um, academics, teachers, um, historians, and they you know the knowledge has always been there you know it's this isn't new the Windrush scandal was just an example of what happens when we're we're just continued we're we're continuing to ignore um, people of color Um, I just don't think it's kind of like a new thing or that things are becoming worse or that it's hard it's just that now we are able to in the age of social media in the age of like some of us who have the privilege of going to university and taking courses, learning about um, African history or in a way that isn't just, oh, it started with slavery. It kind of just in a way that puts in a whole holistic approach. I could go on for ages. It's
2: um. It sort of brings us to your campaign, really, and that you say that, that none of this is anything new and, and your campaign is Memorial 2007. We're now in 2019 and uh, you've been campaigning for a long time, you know, on a, on a subject that people still don't know about. The the transatlantic slave trade still isn't memorialised, still hasn't been remembered. Um, so can you tell me a bit about the, the Memorial 2007 campaign, like how it started and, and where it is now? Okay, so
1: our founder, Oku Ekpenyon, Oku Ekpenyon she, um, while working as a school teacher in 2002, one of her students of um, African heritage asked her, Miss, where is our history? And it was that question that started the idea for, that began the, the, the idea for a permanent memorial for ins- commemorating the victims of the transatlantic slave trades and their descendants began and uh, they called themselves Memorial 2007 because in 2007 it would have been the bicentennial anniversary of Parliament's abolition of the Slave Trade Act. In 2000, in August this year, it will be 17 years since this campaign has started. Um, and at the moment now, we have a deadline reaching in um, the on the 7th of November, where uh, the Westminster Arts Council. Um, we'll, we will lose the planning commission that Westminster Arts Council gave us for the space that the memorial was planned to be erected in in Hyde Park's Rose gardens and we are now talking about um, decolonising our education um, and decolonising Britain but essentially we need to decolonise public spaces we need to start celebrating and acknowledging Black achievements and it starts with a memorial dedicated to the victims of the transatlantic slave trade and their descendants because it's it's part of our history and we, Britain as a society, still benefits from um, Africans-enforced enslaved, enslaved labour and this memorial will act as a point of reflection and education and it can kind of help to educate and fill in the gaps and misinformation that we are still continuing to face
2: the consequences of it's um I, i've seen a sort of a uh a, like a, a mock-up of the sculpture that's going to be there which looks absolutely amazing um i think it's very powerful as well and i i think one of the the things that's really interesting as well as you sort of say about the decolonization of public spaces i i don't think i realized how many um buildings and uh, important sort of buildings were funded by the slave trade and um, it'd be something by, funded by money that, that came from the slave trade. And there's got to be something quite powerful about having a memorial in London in the heart of all that that says, no, hang on, this is our city as well. You know, that's
1: And because honestly Britain kind of inherit like the whole country like, you know, the whole establishment, you know, what we all see today was kind of if it wasn't for the transatlantic slave trade, we, it wouldn't be the country that it is today. The Church of England as a body and as individuals took a proactive role in the transatlantic slave trade. They had um, plantations in the Caribbean. Many British families owned plantations in the Caribbean um, in Devon, finances for the slaving voyages, made money for the economy. We talk about you know, the economic prosperity that Britain enjoyed, but we don't talk about the people at the centre of that story. And even in Britain still today, there are streets in Devon that are still named after slave owners. Um, You know, Conservative MP Richard Drax, his family made their wealth through sugar and created employment in Dorset. He still lives on the family estate in Charborough Park. You know, it's known for its three-mile-long red brick wall and elaborate gates. And his family has had wealth and the privilege of what that wealth brings since their ancestors stepped in Caribbean soil. Our own ex-Prime Minister David Cameron's family background shows that there were slave owners in his family, and and those family members were part of slave owners that were compensated by the British government after the abolition of the slave trade. So Parliament compensated over £20 million, and this debt was finally paid off by Bristol taxpayers in 2015. The history of the transatlantic slave trade and its legacy is still embedded in our society today it's not something that just happened a few years ago and we're still bringing it up or there's something that happened centuries ago and it's, we're still bringing it up it's something that still affects the way we think and it still affects the way in which you know um black people we are still oppressed and it's kind of a lack of representation of this history or the lack of the true representation of how our society is today is inherently racist because you know if we can't remember the past, we are condemned to repeat it. You know, we're condemned because we're not learning from it. And it's why I think, you know, it's why Brexit happened because of this misinformation and, you know, continued lack of education and continued legitimization of racism and the continued erasure of our existence as British people, uh, you know, who have a claim and right into, you know, the country as it is today. And it's so in that way, I just think it's so important that we are taught history um, or we are taught the transatlantic slave trade's history in a way that centers the people at the story because it may, it's, there's a silence, there's a silence of culture surrounding it that makes it almost an uncomfortable truth or a you know, we need to remember those that the twenty to thirty million lives lost, we need to remember that they're we shouldn't just represent them in eternal victimhood. You know, then it's it's a source of inspiration. It's the reason, you know, it's a it's something for so many of us to also be proud of. And this memorial is not just for black British people or or you know, a descendants of Um, the African um, slaves, it's for all of us, it's, it's, it will be a true representation of, you know, honouring and remembering those that lost their lives, and, you know, put in years of their labour, like over 300 years of labour into making the world what it is today. And I think that we're still benefiting from it today. And it's really quite surprising, and also just genuinely institutional racism for why it's taking 17 years to have a memorial erected. And, you know, we're still, in total, we need £4 million for fundraise for this memorial um, in order for it to become a reality. And once Memorial 2007 has established this memorial, will become a, an educational centre that will have the right resources that organisations and schools can come to us to learn about Black history in its entirety and not in a way that centres white abolitionists or makes Britain look good without dealing with the truth of what it is to look bad. And, you know, as people of colour and as Black British, we're still struggling to be represented in society, to be viewed as British. So,
2: so well then, very important question is: How do listeners help the campaign? Um, you said you got till September, is that right? And so, how, how do people? uh was how do people help? Um, how do people spread the word? Uh, what? Where should people go to?
1: So, we're currently planning a campaign video shoot in uh, Hyde Park on Saturday, the 18th of May, where we'll have. Um, well, we'll be asking everyone, where is our history and what is the importance of having our history represented through a memorial? Uh, It will include members of, you know, uh, the Black British diaspora. And um, we also, you can follow us on our Instagram, Memorial 2007, Twitter and Facebook. It's all Memorial 2007. Uh, We have our website, memorial2007.org.uk. And um, once through that, you can reach through us uh social media channels and on our website and our website is changing. It looks a little bit, you know, we're updating that at the moment. No teenage no sh- <laughs> Um
2: <laughs> That's cool. And of course if there's any sort of uh I don't know if I've got any millionaires that listen to this podcast, but if there are and they fancy giving you four million quids, that would be really helpful. <laughs> uh definitely. that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, in which case I'll, I'll ask you the last question, which is a, a question that I just ask uh, every guest we have on this podcast to kind of uh, aim to kind of expand knowledge uh, and, and people seeking out, you know, actual experts and actual information. Um, apart from Memorial 2007 and yourself, um, what other kind of campaigns, writers, websites would you recommend that they follow on both the history of the transatlantic slave trade and also just sort of pushing for better education on black history?
1: So the black curriculum that you can find them on Instagram. Uh, It's a project that's aiming to revive history and renew the teaching of uh, Black British history and re-energise Black British youths in learning and teaching their own um, history. Rerooted is a campaign by young people of colour in Britain who want to change the narrative um, of the curriculum and add migrant and colonial history in the key stage one, two and three curriculum in the current British education system. They're a really cool group of genuine you know, children and it's really cool to see um, young activists taking these issues into their own hands and also wanting to see themselves represented. We can't wait for Parliament any longer. We can't wait for um, these institutions that or these people in power who d- don't have us in their thoughts and prayers. <laughs> um, really good places to uh, read up and learn about Black British history and the Transatlantic slave trade as well is Gauden, uh Black Ballad and um, Black History Educational, Black History Walks if you just Google them, they're really great to kind of um, have a holistic approach and hands-on approach of learning Black British history and the actual history of the Transatlantic slave trade. Currently out now is Emma DeBury's book, Don't Touch My Hair. It, I haven't read it yet, but I know it's amazing. <laughs> um, it's honestly groundbreaking and it kind of explains what the significance of cultural appropriation is. It's <laughs> it's a really great book that kind of details the history of black hair um, and what it really means for us and this um, and what the importance of black history a black hair is for black people. Afua Hirsch has a brilliant book. Um, titled British on Race, Identity and Belonging. And uh, another great book is by Rennie Eddall-Lodge, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race.
2: Thanks so much to Pauline for having time to chat with me. Um, You can find Memorial 2007 online at memorial2007.org.uk and on Twitter at memorial2007 and on Facebook and on Instagram all at memorial2007. They've really got their branding absolutely sorted. Um, There's also a crowdfunder, which I'll pop uh, the link to that in the podcast blurb, as well as a petition calling for Parliament to fund it. Um, And there's a call to action for people to join their campaign video shoot on the 18th of May if you're able to go and help. And again, I'll pop the Facebook link for that in all places, partly political. So do check them out and help if you can. The next few weeks of guests are in the bag and I'll let them out one by one to talk to me before putting them back in and then releasing them into the world afterwards. Um, No, sorry. I mean, I have interviews arranged for up until June, after which I will need interviewees again. So, who do you recommend I chat to? What subject shall I chat about? Who stole the cookies from the cookie jar? Spoiler, not me. I didn't. So, please send answers to all of those things if you have them. Bearing in mind, it wasn't me that stole the cookies. To at Parpo Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could indulge in a very extravagant game of Chinese whispers, whereby you tell one person what you want, who then passes it to the next and the next. However, as is the ethos of this podcast, I would demand that unless you're making a racially inappropriate statement with that game, you would have to do it in fluent Mandarin and a low tone of voice, so it was merely a factual title. Though I don't speak Mandarin, so if someone randomly shouted uh, whatever word it ended up being to me in the street, I'd just assume it was for someone else who did speak Mandarin, and it'd be an entirely wasted few years of your life, apart from the whole learning another language thing, which is oh, it's always good, isn't it? Always good to but like hey it's probably just easier to email Hmm? and that's all for this week's partly political broadcast podcast thanks loads for your precious precious time and i promise that i now will uh, have put it somewhere safe where it won't get broken and use it when needed perhaps before a deadline or just when crossing the road to upset drivers please do donate to the show via the ko-fi or patreon if you can and want to both of those are important factors and if you don't want to or can't then why not review the show for free or advertise it to others via the medium of your mouth or social media accounts or children's parent teacher night or graffiti on your local bus stop or large tattoo across your exposed sexy midriff Thankings to Acast for filing this show in its sound library, to my brother, the Last Skeptic, for all the musical sounds, and to Cat Dave for typing up the linear liner notes to add to the archive of partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk that some of you look at occasionally. All the links, transcripts of my bits, and all the other things are there, so go see, browse, click to your heart's content. Go now, hurry, go now. Before the Brexit party, take the internets away and we're reduced to just shouting at the sky. Hurry! This will be back next week when Nigel Farage will be complaining about the media ignoring him on 15 different channels at once while also somehow being an extra playable character on Fortnite. Meanwhile, the Change UK party have to wait six hours for a repair van to fix their battle bus as they keep assuming it's a prank call. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Matt Hancock's Snappy Threads. Are you worried you can no longer hang with the kids? Do you think you're looking more dad than daddy-o? Well, Snappy Threads is the new clothing app from real snazzy hip cat Matt Hancock that really does make them like they used to. Need an unnecessarily tight t-shirt to tuck into those cords and show off your one pack? Snappy Threads got your back. Worried that you don't have sandals to wear with your favourite socks? Hancock's Snappy Threads be here. Matt Hancock's Snappy Threads, available now for reasonable prices because I'm not made of money, you know. You'll understand when when you're older and stop talking back to your mother. Hold
0: up.